Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, I didn't introduce myself earlier. Uh, I'm Taylor Leachman, the planting pastor here at Advent, and uh, it's so good uh, to be here with you all today. Um, we have uh, uh, one thing I've, I've forgot to mention earlier. Um, we're trying to, to do something new where we are providing pew Bibles, um, and they're on a cart rather than like putting each one on a on a uh, um, on a seat. Uh, and so if you'd like a Bible, um, or maybe even don't have one, you take, take, feel free to take that one home. Um, but maybe if you just want to read along with us uh, from the Bible, feel free to grab one of those. We'll try and do a better job of like mentioning it on your way in, uh, so you can grab it then. Um, but we have been working our way through Genesis uh, quite slowly, um, coming to the end of chapter two this week uh, after six weeks, so we're kind of going at about three three weeks per chapter. Um, where last week we zoomed zo- zoomed in on the creation of Adam, and now we're coming to the creation of Eve, um, and they are actually not named yet. Uh, th- their naming comes a little bit more in Genesis chapter three, where I hear they're actually referred more to the man as the man and the woman. Um, but as we come to this passage, uh, excuse me, I want to set our expectations a bit, because part of preaching uh, is actually instructing us in how to read the Bible, um, and uh, it's important that we set the expectations for a passage like this, um, and what it, what this passage is saying and doing, because this passage isn't trying to answer all of our questions about men and women. It doesn't talk about the roles of men and women within marriage. It uh, doesn't talk about the roles of men and women within the church, right? There are other passages of the Bible that deal with those particular issues. Um, but as a whole, this passage is helping us to see how men and women are to relate to one another, right? How men and women are to partner together, um, how men and women together fill the earth and subdue it as God intended it. What is amazing is when you look at other similar creation stories written around the same time as Genesis, none of them contain uh, a creation story about women. So the mere fact that it contains one in the Bible should tell us what we need to get out of it, that men and women are to be treated with dignity and respect. And that is one of the key elements of what this passage is talking about today. And so, if you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles, Pew Bibles, to page 2, and we're going to read Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's all pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and we pray, Lord, that as we, um, as we learn from it, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, give us hands and feet uh, to follow you, to do your will, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, last year, uh, a Twitter account uh, run by women of the UN said the following. It said, of all journalists killed in 2021, 11% were women. In 2020, it was 6%. And then they followed it up by saying, stop targeting women journalists. Right? Now, somehow, in trying to get their point across rightly, right, that there were women journalists who were targeted and killed because they were women. They missed one of the key elements of the story here, right? That in 2021, 89% of journalists that were killed were men, right? Now, why do I bring this up? Um, am I about to go misogynistic on you all? I'm not. No, uh, hopefully I, I got enough credibility at the beginning there. Um, no, that's not my intention at all. I bring this up because I believe that we are experiencing a war between the sexes that I've never seen in my lifetime. Um, a journalist uh, by the name of Steve QJ was noticing that more and more young men are flocking to a problematic online influencer. Now, I think this is going to be interesting to pull the room. How many of y'all have heard of Andrew Tate? I'm guessing the youth will... And the okay, we got we got one one of of, an, of another generation. All right, wonderful. Um, so that more young and young men are, are are flocking to this online influencer named Andrew Tate. And Tate is a former kickboxing champion and a self-proclaimed, with honor and glory, a misogynist. He thinks that that is an honorable name to call himself. Right? He has been quoted and has not backed down from a few of his controversial statements, such as, I think that women, plural, belong to the man, singular, right? So that's one of his quotes. Females are the ultimate status symbol is another. And then the third, which I find the most problematic as a pastor, is read the Bible. Every single man had multiple wives. Not a single woman had multiple husbands, right? So that last one is not only misogynistic, but also foolish and, and wrong, because one of the things we learn as we read the Bible is because it is describing something, it is being descriptive, does not mean it is being prescriptive, as in prescribing something. And we're going to finish our sermon by talking about a passage where there was a woman with more than one husband. Right? By profiling Andrew Tate and his growing popularity, Steve QJ points out that he sees a growing problem a society in which men and women see each other as the problem, right? His tweets like what the UN women were doing here, rightly recognizing that women have lacked a voice and are trying to take up for it, 
but maybe having an overreaction to what that ought to look like in the fact that they then begin to ignore the male element, men begin to feel unheard and unseen and then have an overreaction yet again to problematic people and teachers like Andrew Tate, right? To capture some sense of agency and voice. And so in bringing this up and introducing our passage today, I'm not trying to diminish or, or, or to belittle any of maybe the real harm that some of y'all have been through. Um, at any time that you've maybe been looked down upon uh, because of your gender or you've been mistreated as a result of any of that, right? I'm not trying to rub salt in those wounds at all. Rather, I'm trying to help us see that the ways in which our cultural voices, right, and maybe even some of our own voices, have communicated about sex and gender with animosity and with one-upmanship, right, that that has actually contributed to a highly problematic uh, way of thinking. It's important to recognize when those voices that we're listening to and the ideas that we're allowing to shape our own views Right, when they're causing us to look at one another unbiblically. And so today's scripture passage helps to clear out all that cultural mess, right, clouding our vision, um, because it affirms our shared dignity. Right? It affirms our shared roles as image bearers and our mutually beneficial design for one another. So the question I want for us to, to bring to Scripture today, I want, I want to actually uh, approach this sermon with two questions. Right? And that is, first, what is this passage telling us about women? And sort of subsequently of that first question, how men and women are supposed to, uh, to relate to one another? And then second, how does our New Testament passage that Juliana read for us earlier, how does that fit in uh, to what this passage is teaching us? So first, what is this passage telling us about women? And second, how does the New Testament passage uh, uh, inform this passage as well? So last week, we talked about that relational connection between God and man. As God created man from the dust and breathed life into him, it's this incredibly relationally close image that's being set up there, right? Think CPR and how immediately close that makes you to someone else, how intimate, right? As God created this crowning achievement of, uh, of, of his creation with the creation of mankind. But here we see a, a zooming in aspect, right? Not everything is perfect. Though creation is good, there is something that's incomplete about it which is what it means here in verse 18 when it says it's not good for man to be alone. And so God decides that he's going to do something about it. He's going to make a helper suitable for man. And our passage describes in detail right, Adam's encounters with the other creatures, with this parade of animals. Adam encounters them and, and he names them, right? Um, as he is now embracing that role of having dominion over the other creatures. He's doing what God created him to do. But none of those animals could help Adam to fulfill his call of having dominion, right? There was no helper suitable for, uh, for kind of helping him to do what he's doing. None of those animals would be that type of helper to him. And so God makes a new creature, not from the dust, but from Adam's own body, the same body into which um, 
the God of heaven and earth breathed life. Right? When Adam first sees Eve, he breaks into poetry. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right? This is at last the helper that is suitable for him. And now I want to pause here for a minute because it can be easy to assume that we know exactly what helper here means. Um, right? For most of us, when we hear the word helper, we typically think of assistant or servant or like sous chef or assistant coach right? or, or low-level housekeeper. Think like the help, right? Um, and depending upon your relationship, uh, or sorry, depending upon your translation, I should say, you might have written in your Bible the phrase, um, a help meet, uh, written there, meaning companion, which can kind of uh, begin to sound like, like extra, right? This, this other person to come alongside of Adam, like an ice cream sundae, you have the ice cream, but it's missing that little bit of extra. You need the chocolate sauce, you need the cherry on top, right? Um, you have that main substance, and that's the man, right? And then you need the chocolate and the cherry on top, and that's the woman. That's how it can sound to us when we think these ways. The problem with taking the words helper or helpmeet at face value without looking at those words within the context of the whole story of Scripture is that we begin to misinterpret them. Because yes, the woman is referred to as a helper, a helper suitable for the man, but what we miss most often when we think of helper as sous chef or arm candy or chocolate and and cherry, right, is the fact that multiple times throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as Israel's helper, right? He's not the little bit of extra, right? He's not, uh, you know, their relegated, um, relegated help. For example, Moses refers to God as Israel's helper after rescuing them out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 18, right? This is uh, how we refer to God when, uh, how, how the Bible refers to God when Israel was facing incredibly challenging circumstances. So the word in Hebrew that is used here is that same word that describes God as helper, And God is often referred to as Israel's helper when they need him most. When they're facing enemies with scary odds. So helper does not mean less than. Right? Scripture is very clear here that the woman is not subservient to the man because she is a woman. She is not that little bit of extra. She's not the chocolate. She's not the cherry on top that goes along with like the real thing. That's not what is being talked about here. When he creates the woman out of the man, God reveals that until that moment, creation was incomplete. It was deficient. It was lacking something that it needed. And God fills up that lack by bringing Adam a partner. He's making a team mate. He is making a woman. This helper, when brought together with the first man, is this like stabilizing force in creation, in the created order. The man and the woman together in their complementarity, right? They go together. They create this perfect partnership. One is not subservient to the other, but together they are very, very good, right? Now, this is not trying to say that, like, if you're single, you're less than. That's not what I'm saying either, right? I don't think that, that um, it's within the purview of this passage 
um, you know, to, to, to say that. But, and, and like, I also don't think that unless we're going as far as to say, like, it's good for everyone not to be single. Okay, yeah, I would agree with that. It's not good for everyone to be single. Um, but apart from that, it's not talking about those sorts of things. Instead of focusing on the negative, this passage is rather intending us to focus on the positive, what it means to live um, and to fill out our calling together. Right? That it is a blessing that God gave man and woman to each other, to be together, to have dominion together. Right? Certainly, it's good for us to be together in marriage. Right? We can read other biblical, biblical passages about that. But also to work together for His purposes to live out the coming of the kingdom, to tell others about the coming of the kingdom. We need men and women together to do this. And one way of applying this um, in particular is in that self-justification, I think, that we often feel as men and women um, about our own sex as we try and self-justify ourselves to others um, of a different sex. Right, this passage is helping us to see that in the eyes of God, right, the true judge, the true creator of all things, we do not need to make up um, for the sexism of others. Right? As if somehow because men have been uh, um, you know, uh, kind of dominating of women, that men are therefore uh, immoral. Right? We don't need to make up for that as men. Nor do you women need to work uh, extra hard in the workplace to justify yourselves because you're a woman. God has declared you worthy, equal, and valid. Right? For you men, that's my, uh, sorry, we were created for one another and we ought to treat one another with that type of respect, kindness, and love. That is what is being talked about here at last. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But isn't the passage telling us that, that somehow like women are a derivative of man, right? Isn't that what the, the, the part of being talked about with the single rib means? I recently had a, t- a child tell me with great enthusiasm and confidence that, <clears throat> that women had more ribs than men. Um, and they said it with so much confidence that I began to doubt myself. Uh, like, how would I not have known that? Um, and so I kind of kept the conversation going long enough to like think through, do I... Am I wrong here? Are they wrong here? Um, and so as I'm trying to make, uh, make sure I'm not being outsmarted um, by an elementary school child, by somebody who perhaps is in another room uh, with adventurers, um, I decided to ask some follow-up questions, right? Where did you hear that? And I began to realize they heard it in a Bible study or at church. And I was like, ah, oh, okay, I'm drawing the connection together. Right? From that connection, oh, she's talking about Adam and Eve and the creation of Eve from Adam. Right? In her mind, the young child assumed that what is being talked about here is Adam giving up one of his many ribs so that Eve could then have more ribs um, than he did. Right? So it's sort of like we each have $10 and I'm going to give you one of my dollars so I go from 9 and you go to 11. Right? Um, I bring this up because I think a lot of us, not just this young girl, are confused about what is going on here. Why is God using a rib? Why does this, what does this mean about men and women and how we relate? Is there something deeper that's being signified here? And those questions are good because the word that is being translated here, rib, literally is the word side 
as inside of a building. And it's often translated rib because rib is anatomically the building blocks of the side, right? Um, The side of a human. But this isn't trying to say that God literally took the rib of a man, uh, but rather that God, uh, he is... He isn't creating something new from brand new building blocks, right? He isn't taking the dust and creating something new yet again. He's making something that corresponds, complements, and comes from man, right? He doesn't pick the skull as if to indicate that the woman should be the head of the man, and he doesn't pick the feet as if the woman should be below the man, right? He picks the side because side by side they stand stronger together as a single building. So perhaps God took one rib. Perhaps God took uh, half of a rib cage. Perhaps he took that and some flesh. We don't know. That's not what the point of the passage is saying. Scripture doesn't tell us the details of the operation. What it tells us is that God opened the man up, took a side of him, and crafted out of it a helper suitable for him. She became a suitable helper because she is from him. She is of him. He takes a side of him so that together they become a full building. They stabilize that aloneness that currently exists. They correspond to and complement one another. So why does this matter? Well, it matters for a couple reasons. First, it matters because women are not to be subjugated to men, by men. In fact, what this is saying is that God designed men and women to be equal. There is nothing about being a woman that ought to make you feel less than a man in worth, in dignity, And whatever else might make you feel less than. That doesn't mean that men and women aren't different though. There is a complementarity to these sides being one building together. But it means that men and women are equally loved and valued by God. And should be by one another. And therefore, men and women ought to be equally, uh, they ought to, um, to go into workplaces and churches and demonstrate what that looks like. And now, there's a lot that I could say about marriage here because I think the, the end of the passage goes into that. And, and that's another sermon for another time. But um, let me just say this. This passage talks about men leaving their father and mother and becoming one flesh with the woman. And this is incredibly important, right? The passage is saying that, that the blood that ties us together as a family is weaker than the flesh that ties us together in marriage, husbands and wives have together. And that's a really important like Christian counseling or biblical you know, premarital counseling uh, element that we can talk more about because the bonds that tie us to our families of origin are good and they're given to us by God. But no matter how good they are, once we get married, we're to take the side, the partnership with our spouse more seriously than we do our family of origin. I said we could get more into that, but I just wanted to at least kind of articulate that's part of the purview of what this passage is talking about. We could talk more about that, or I'll I'll relate everybody. Go talk to Curtis about that. Uh, I was just kidding. Um, Although, yeah, sure. Uh, Talk to him as well. But the second question I have for us is, what does the Bible teach us as a whole uh, about this? What does our New Testament passage have um, as it corresponds to this? 
Um, our New Testament passage that we read earlier says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Right? As it was begin to talk more and more about men and women relating to, to one another. The New Testament refers again and again to this metaphor that Christ loves his people um, like a husband is supposed to love his wife. He does so because Christ, um, Christ has a union with his church that is so special that nothing can break it. It's much stronger than that one flesh bond. He is our helper. He is the one that we need in order to be made whole. For we cannot do it alone. We need him to make us whole. And how Christ serves the church is both our salvation and our model. Because Jesus did not come to demand for us to serve him, though all glory and honor and dominion is his. And it would actually be right for him to demand that of us. No, he came into the world to serve, to love us, and to give himself for us. He takes the lowliest of places. He washes the feet of those that he loves. So no matter how overlooked you have felt by people of other genders, he sees you. No matter how diminished you feel, right? And right now I'm talking to both men and women. The king of creation sees you. He loves you. He serves you. And no matter how worthless someone makes you feel, he has given you his worth if you have placed your faith in him. Such that if you have placed your faith in him, we are called his sons and daughters and we inherit the earth that is his. That is the worth that is bestowed upon you. If that is what Christ has done for you as the anointed king, then how should we then treat one another? For all of us who are in Christ, united to him by faith, it should cause us to take that exact same posture. We have all of... All that we have is his. What else do we need psychologically? Right? So therefore we can humble ourselves. We can love others as he has loved us. No matter how much we have been put down because of our gender, we are loved by him. And finally, for those of you um, maybe who have been listening to this passage and have been thinking, you know, I don't have a husband or a wife who treats me like this. Or I've consistently, maybe though I I have somebody in my life, um, it hasn't always felt like, yay, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. I'm not uh, immediately coming into song. Let me point you to this. That no matter how you have been mistreated, no matter how poorly you have been dated, or you've been married, or been divorced, your completeness, your completeness isn't based upon uh, your finding a helpmate in this world. We are completed in our relationship with Christ. For it is His love for you that causes us to say, at last. Right? My soul finds rest, for I am loved, respected, and valued. I am made whole by my union with Him. He loves you. He fulfills you. Let me conclude with this. I said earlier 
that, that Andrew Tate was wrong uh, about the number, uh, about any references to women having more than one husband. Um, if we read John's gospel, we come to John chapter 4, where Jesus and his disciples go into Samaria and they go to a well. And at that well, Jesus encounters a woman in the middle of the day at a time in which she is avoiding any of the crowds. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want, uh, maybe she actually can't be seen. Maybe they want nothing to do with her. We aren't entirely sure if it's at her impetus or at his. Or, or sorry, at hers, at hers or at theirs. But the woman comes to draw water. And she, we find out that this woman has had multiple husbands, five different husbands, and the one that she is currently with is not her husband's. We don't know what the story is there. Maybe they've mistreated her. Maybe she's been looking for the right one and keeps going to a new one and is just looking for somebody in all the wrong places, right? But we know she's, but in some, some way, shape, or form, she's had five and now a sixth different, uh, different partner. And we see this juxtaposition between her life, right, and, and the well, right, and the water. She's thirsty for something. She wants something, right? It's not good for her to be alone is sort of that element that she's feeling. And yet in a fallen world, none of these husbands is filling that up, right? She's looking for love and companionship. And Jesus tells her that he has this living water, this water that will finally quench her thirst. And she is so pumped but she thinks it's real water, right? Until finally she begins to encounter him as he reveals himself to her over and over that he knows everything about her and has welcomed her anyway and says, here is this living water. It is yours, right? That is true of any and all of us. Yes, we should be looking for, uh, you know, wonderful partnerships with one another, but rather... We need to be looking to Christ. And as we look to him, we find at last, this is who I was made for. So let that be, uh, let that be the main point of today's sermon. May I pray uh, for us. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for what you have done for us in him. And though we have mistreated others, we have been mistreated. We've been looked down upon by others and we have looked down upon others. Lord, we know that in you and in Christ, you look upon us and you see his glory. You see his righteousness. And though we were sinners, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So may we feed upon him, may we drink upon him and may our thirst be quenched once and for all. May we recognize that we were made for him. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Amen.